Take your Bibles. Go ahead and go to Mark chapter 12 this morning. I'll get there in just one moment. First, a couple of quick announcements as you're turning there. Um, Operation Christmas Child is underway um, big time. In fact, we've got two weeks till it's done. And so boxes are due back here on November 15th. And uh, so we would love to encourage you to bring those boxes, drop them off at the office 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. during the week. We're open then. And then uh, on your way out, you can actually grab uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes if you haven't gotten one yet, a shoebox, and fill that up. So that's, that's coming up. And then uh, tomorrow night at 7 p.m., both here and online, we are going to be uh, having a prayer night. The, the night of prayer is going to be focused on our country in specific. Um, as you know, there's something going on this week. I don't know if you've heard. Um, but greater than anything that happens on Tuesday, much greater than anything that happens on Tuesday, is who we are before God as a country. And it's not just a country. It's individuals. And so as we gather to pray for our country, let it be known right now, we will not be praying for a party. We will not be praying for a specific candidate to win. We'll be praying that the hearts and the minds of Americans are captured by the work of the Holy Spirit, that they get to see with clear eyes the one true king, instead of being distracted by this political mess we live in. Okay, good. At least y'all said amen. Nobody got up and ran out. That's a good sign. Because this morning, if you didn't remember, we are talking about the politics of Jesus. Whee! I had this date circled on my calendar, probably for reasons you... you, (laughs) The wrong reasons, but... uh, Before I jump in, let me just tell you where we're going. Uh, I am not going to be working on simplifying your decision-making process. I am not going to be talking specifically um, about policies and issues. Uh, My hope and prayer has been that you will leave here this morning thinking about what matters most instead of what's being talked about the most. What I'm asking God to do today is to help us understand what it means when he's called us to be different. We've been talking about that for a long time now in 1 Peter. So what does it mean? What does it look like? I think, um, as Lisa was introducing the I Belong to You song, which is definitely a favorite one of mine, she mentioned John chapter 17. And what you find in John 17 is overwhelming. Jesus prayed for you. You see that in John 17. It is amazing. Jesus prayed for you. And his primary prayer request about his people was that they would be unified. And so I think one of the greatest takeaways for today is just that. What God is calling his people to is not uniformity, not being unanimous in our decision. What God is calling us to is to walk out of here in unity because we don't serve Caesar. We serve Jesus. And keeping that in front of us is going to be really important. Big takeaways. I'm going to cheat today, and I'm going to give you my main point at the beginning, just so in case you get lost in the middle of one of the rabbit trails I'm on, you're like, oh, that's what he's talking about, because I may forget too, Um, is this. Uh, For today, the main focus is, when your hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone, you can have inexplicable unity with someone you totally disagree with. When your hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone, you can have inexplicable unity with somebody you totally disagree with. 
I'll make mention of this second point, but it's really next week's topic, and it's this. When you are focused on Jesus and Jesus alone for your hope, you can have a deep peace in a world that has lost its mind. And that's going to be more next week. So how are we going to process this? I'm going to uh, look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to unpack it a little bit, and then we're going to make some application. All right? All right. Here we go. I decided to go with the table this week, so it seemed like I was more casual. I had to make sure I wore socks that matched, though, so that was awful. My, I'm trying to get you to laugh now because you ain't laughing later, I promise. So, um, all right. So a little context for you. Um, as as um, uh, we head into Mark 12, Jesus, just chapters before, um, uh, has just entered into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. This is the Passion Week of Jesus. That's when this is happening. The Passion Week of Jesus this is his final week of life. So he has come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and people are losing their minds, and they're waving their hands and palm branches and throwing their jackets down, like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one. Woohoo! And as he gets into Jerusalem, he heads to the temple, and he tears it up. He removes people and things that are making a mockery of what the temple was meant to be. He's been teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God, and he's been doing it aggressively. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of God. And and as you saw with the triumphal entry, there was a a groundswell of support for Jesus. The people were beginning to rally around him, albeit probably for the wrong reasons, right? And so now seeing this, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they're mentioned in chapter 11, verse 27. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are trying to find a way to trip Jesus up. They're trying to find a way actually to bring him to the place where they can have him arrested. But every time they engage him, Jesus just smokes them. And so now they're concerned because the crowd is starting to turn against them. They recognize that Jesus isn't just speaking up in this nebulous land. He is taking direct shots at the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And so they decide they're, they're going to shrink back a little bit. Instead, they're going to put forward another group. And this other group are the Pharisees and the Herodians. That's who we're about to read about here. In chapter 12, starting in verse 13, says this. Then they, chief priests, scribes, elders, sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came to him, they said to him, Teacher, oh, we know you are truthful. And you don't care what anybody thinks, nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So, so you feel that, right? Here comes this group, and this is a strange group. For, uh, uh, Pharisees and Herodians, you've got, you can't find two further separated politically entities at this time. You get the Herodians or who are, are loyal to Rome and the Pharisees who are anti-Rome. And suddenly, they've become allies because Jesus is such a threat, they both want to work against him. So now they stand before Jesus and they start off with this list of compliments. I mean, it's almost creepy sounding. You know, because you get behind the scenes here, you know they're coming to try to trap him in his words. And then they start opening their mouths like, you are amazing. You're unbelievable. You're such a man of integrity. We know you would never lie. And, and, and you read commentators, and they're trying to figure out why the Pharisees and the Herodians would start with such pleasant platitudes, with such compliments. And, and one, and I tend to agree with this, is idea is that they, they would yield this ground to Jesus by giving him that much credit because they were so confident of the trap they were setting for Jesus. They were willing to yield the ground because they did not think there was any way Jesus was getting out of this one. 
and then it switches at the idea. Compliment, 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 compliment. Give us a yes or no. Should we pay this tax? Should we or shouldn't we? Now, this, this particular tax is, is known as the head tax, a poll tax, a census tax. Think um, Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem. The whole world should be taxed. That's this. And, and really what this tax was, um, was an opportunity for all of the people that Rome had conquered to pay Rome for the privilege of being conquered by Rome. And so as you can imagine, it was a wildly unpopular tax. I mean, it wasn't huge. A denarius is a day's wage. It's not, it's not enormous. But in essence, it was. You were paying for the privilege of being conquered by Rome. And so, in fact, in 6 AD, it led to a revolt. This man named Judas the Galilean just was fed up about this tax and said, there is no Jew who should pay this tax, period. And he began to create this, this aura around him and this, this revolution around him. We will not pay this tax. We will not pay this tax. And so then he gets his armed men and they head to Jerusalem and they enter to Jerusalem, him riding on the back of a horse. This is in 6 AD. Ends up in Jerusalem, goes to the temple, finds anything in the temple that was donated by Rome or actually pictured Rome or pointed back to Rome, and he ripped all of those things out of the temple. And then he stood before the people of Jerusalem and said, men and women of God, if you would simply support me and get behind me, what we will do is we will throw off this Roman occupation and we will usher in the kingdom of God. Now, as you can imagine, that didn't go really well with Rome. So they caught him, and they executed him. Um, he's actually mentioned in the New Testament, Judas the Galilean, Acts chapter 5. Uh, Gamaliel is speaking to the Sanhedrin, and he says, listen, about the, the movement of the way, the apostles talking about Jesus, said to the rest of the Sanhedrin, if this is a movement of man, it will fail. And he uses Judas the Galilean as an example of a movement of men that failed. You see what they're doing, right? You see the trap that they're setting, right? Jesus just rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He went to the temple and he cleansed it. The people were rallying around him, shouting about the kingdom of God. What they're trying to do is associate Jesus with a failed revolution. And so now, if Jesus answers them, remember they said, so should we pay it or not? They want a yes or a no. They don't want any talk. Yes or no. And, and so Jesus says, yes, pay the taxes then what he has done is he has sided with the pro-Romans and the people will walk away from Jesus instantly. But if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, then he's sided with the anti-Romans and this becomes about another political uprising and Rome takes note and Jesus is in a lot of trouble. I mean, it's a good trap. It's, it's, it's an expertly worded trap. Keep in mind, they didn't want to know Jesus' view on taxes. They had no interest in really knowing that, that answer. What they wanted was for Jesus to declare a political position which will then undermine his work in ministry. They wanted Jesus to declare a political position which would undermine his work and ministry. Keep that in the back of your head. It's going to come up later. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus says to them, and I don't know, I might sanctified imagination. I can hear Jesus. Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. 
So they bring him a coin. Whose image and inscription is on this? He asked. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. And the only thing better than the trap that they had set was Jesus' answer. You know how you know? You know because a politician, when they don't answer your question, it makes you angry. I mean, you've seen that. We've watched some debates lately. We've heard some interviews. And when a politician's like, so, do you like red or blue? Well, actually, the fish swim in the sea. And it's like, what was that? Answer the question. But they're not angry when Jesus is done answering the question. They're amazed. Shows you how good of an answer it was. So he tells them first, get the coin. Whose image is on that coin? Now, uh, these are very common. Even today, you can find these. Uh, so let me throw a picture up here of the, the denarius of the day. Um, he, he asked whose image and inscription is on it. So that is a picture of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar is the, the Caesar at the time. Um, you can't really make out the writing, but the one with the, the head on it, it says the Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So it's making claim that he is the son of God. And on the flip side, where he's sitting on the throne there, it's, it says, and I always mess this up, so i got to read it, <laughs> Pontifex Maximus, which means the high priest. So, so this, this coin, this coin was, was common throughout the emperor. It was, uh, it's common today, you can find them today. It's actually Tiberius' money. This is actually coming out of his bank account. This is his money. It's the currency of the, the empire there. And so, so when Jesus asked him whose image is on it, the people are like, well, that's easy, it's Caesar's. And so he says, good. And the King James says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, the, the Christian Standard Bible says, just give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The idea is that you return, you pay back to Caesar what is already his. Give to him what has his image and his inscription on it. But whatever belongs to God, whatever is marked by God's image, you must give back to God. What would that be? You. Genesis chapter 2. Let us make man in our image. We have been created in God's very image. And so Jesus says, Caesar's coin belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. He's worthy of having the coin. Now be careful because Caesar wants more than the coin. The coin even says so. He wants your worship. He wants your total allegiance. And Jesus says, no, no, you give to Caesar what he deserves, not necessarily what he wants. Because only God deserves your heart. His image has been stamped on you. So what can we learn from Jesus through this? Well, a lot. Um, I have two basic categories. The first one is this. Christians have a political responsibility. Christians have a political responsibility. What we are supposed to do is give them what they are due. When Jesus said, give, <laughs> give Caesar this tax, it was completely unexpected at the time. I mean, they, they, they pay the oppressors, but they're not God-fearers. Now, Jesus says government isn't a Christian organization. Government may actually even be pagan, but it can serve and bless people with roads and safety and military and different things like that. So taxes are certainly within reason. But we're not just called to give them taxes. We're told elsewhere that we're supposed to give them respect, honor, and submission. Not, not just when we agree with them or because we're afraid of them. 
We, we don't submit to them because the voice of the people has put them in charge. We submit to them because God has established them as our authority. That's, that's why you submit to them. Because God is the one who placed them there. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he says, God removes kings and he establishes kings. Proverbs 21 says the king's heart is, is in, in, in God's hand. And, and God just kind of turns it like a stream wherever he wants. In John 19, you have this interaction, this confrontation between, between Pilate and, and, and Jesus. And Jesus won't respond to Pilate. And, and Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority to have you crucified or set free? And then Jesus responds and says, you don't have any authority that wasn't given to you by God. We are called to give them our respect, our honor, and our submission. But what if... I know, you're all lawyers. What if the nation has a horrible and oppressive government that demands that you disobey God's clear commands? Well, let me be clear. Every government since the fall has supported immorality or sin to one degree or another. Every government. Even during the time of Jesus, even during the time of Paul, even during the time of Peter, and yet God, through his word, still commanded us to give them our respect, our honor, and our submission. So if that government comes to you and commands or demands that you disobey God's clear commandment, then your responsibility is to live as peaceably as you are able to while obeying God. I mean, look at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did it, right? We will not bow to that thing. Now, they weren't out there with picket signs like, we won't bow, we won't bow. They just refused to bow. Daniel was commanded through uh, a trick not not to pray anymore. He's not allowed to uh, appeal to his God. Did he go in the street corner and make a ruckus? Did he go pounding on the king's door? No, he did what he always does. He went back up to his room and he prayed. Paul, the Apostle Paul, appealed to his citizenship regularly. You get to the end of the book of Acts, and what you find is he is using his citizenship to advance the gospel. And yet when he stands before these people who are in authority, when he stands before these government figures who would be opposing him and against him, what comes out of him is respect and honor, not disdain and slander. We need to be different. We should follow the example and a clear command that God has placed in front of us to honor, submit, and respect those who are in authority. Uh, a few weeks ago, months ago now, I guess, I preached out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. It's a real popular message. You all really loved it. I had a good time. I don't know how to do it, but it says this. Submit to every authority because of the Lord. Did you catch that? Pretty subtle. Submit to every authority because of the Lord, not because they're in your party. Not because you agree with them on policies. Not because they're good human beings. Not because they profess to know Jesus as Savior. You submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Whether that be to the emperor as supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to, to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Verse 17, honor everyone. Fear God. Love the brothers and sisters. Honor the emperor. You, you, you honor and respect not because you get what you want from them, but because God commands you to. And God has set them in a position over you. You owe them taxes. You owe them honor, respect, and submission. You owe them prayer. 
You owe them prayer. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says this, first of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What Paul does is he urges us to pray for every leader, for every authority, so that we can lead quiet and peaceful lives and that so people will get saved. So Christians have a political responsibility. Now I want to spend the, <laughs> this is going to make you nervous, the bulk of my time. <sighs> On the second thing we can learn from Jesus here, when he says this, Christians not only have a political responsibility, Christians have a God-given mandate. A God-given mandate. Another way to say that. Um, kind of explain, particularly for those of you who are guests with us this morning, and like, this is nuts. Um, It's about to get crazier, I promise. There's an indicative and an imperative. Wait, I didn't know this was going to be English class. Okay, the indicative is this. It's pretty simple. You ready? God created you in his image. You have sinned against God. You are a sinner both by nature and by practice. And some of us have a lot of practice. We've rebelled against him. We have separated ourselves from God in our sin, and we are unable to do anything about that separation. But God looked at you while you were a sinner and loved you. He gave his son for you, who came and lived a perfect life, a righteous life, a life that you and I could never live, and died a death that you and I should have died. And on that cross, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, on that cross, cross, the one who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, became sin for us so that we might get his righteous credit to our account and he might carry away our sin. He was put to death on the cross and then he was laid in a tomb and three days later, he defeated sin, death, and the grave forever. That's the indicative. That's what's been done for you, stated. But it's not just an indicative, there's also an imperative. You are commanded to do something as a result of the indicative. So because God has stamped his image on you, he did that by creating you in his image. But even more than that, as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, he did more than just create you in his image. He created you again through Jesus Christ. And because he has created you again through Jesus Christ and salvation, the imperative of that is then you owe him your heart, your worship, and your life. Give to God what is God's. So what does that look like specifically? Well, it looks like this. Keep the main thing the main thing. I think one of the ways that we can look most different in our culture today is by remembering that though politics can be important, they must never become ultimate. And my fear is that the church, and I don't mean Uniontown Bible Church or any other church, I mean the church, the people. That's what the church is. My fear is that the church may have misplaced where politics is supposed to be on the bus. Politics can be important. They can't become ultimate. They can't control you. They can't intoxicate you. So, so with, with, with much fear, I'm going to use an illustration here out of um, Ephesians chapter 5, um, hasn't rained for a while on a Sunday, has it? 
Let's enjoy that for a second before I get in trouble. Ah, okay, so here we go. So, um, politics is much like alcohol. Where I believe the Bible teaches clearly that alcohol can be enjoyed and partaken in. I was going to say alcohol can be drunk, but that's like a weird way to say that. It can be, that's the problem. But, but in partaking in alcohol, that you must remain hyper-vigilant, that you don't allow it to take hold of you and control you. You must never allow anything outside of the Holy Spirit to intoxicate you. Anything. And that applies to more than just alcohol. That could be caffeine, too. Nothing should control you outside of the Spirit of God. And in politics, it can happen. It becomes ultimate, and you begin to view other people through the lens of your politics. And in that case, your politics have become ultimate. And the reason your politics have become ultimate is because they're your idol. How can you tell if politics is an idol? Is there any issue in this particular election that is more important to you than the gospel? Any issue. If there is, my friend, you're worshiping an idol. If you've got uh, uh, this, this practice of demonizing people who disagree with you politically, that's a sign of an idol. Because an idol demands 100% allegiance. If you've lost sleep over your party possibly losing, you can be certain that you have at least the very beginnings of an idol. Guys, if you've talked more to people about who they should vote for than who they should worship, it's not the kingdom of God that you're all about. And if, we, if you leave here angry, if you leave here angry because I said too much or I didn't say enough, that means I poked your idol in the eye. It's not wrong to talk about politics. And, and I, I will... Uh, I will repent in front of you. Um, I don't want to make light of it, because actually it really is. It's something that I got convicted of this week. It's not wrong to be political. It's not wrong um, to, to be patriotic. Um, I, I tend to shy away from that, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why. So it's not wrong to talk about politics, but it's wrong when you allow the noise of something so insignificant to drown out the good news. Well, it's wrong when your name is mentioned and people are like, yeah, well, he's a Democrat. Yeah, he's a Republican. Instead of, yeah, that guy loves Jesus. It's wrong when your politics undermine the ministry of the gospel. You need to be seeking his kingdom first. Keep the main thing the main thing. You need to, let me coin a phrase for you, love God most, love others best. Heard that somewhere? It's our very mission. That's, that's what we're all about. Is love God most. Make sure that he is the one who we are pursuing. And pursue him with everything you've got and let all the other things fall by the side and take care of themselves. Love God most, love others best. Remember, remember that mandate to love others best, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
That came from the mouth of Jesus. You know that, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so what should be happening in a believer's life as they're getting ready for the, the vote is you should be wrestling with how you should vote. Do I vote to, to make myself comfortable? Do I vote to fill my wallet? Do I vote to insulate myself from the things that I'm afraid of? And, 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 and I'm not going to say this. You're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, even in how you vote. Our voting should reflect the obedience to what God's called us to. Certainly what God's called sin and what God's called right, and we should, that should reflect but, but it should also be about what's best for our neighbor. What pushes forward the, the kingdom of God? What does that look like? What does that look like? All right, this is where, okay, this is where it looks like obedience to everything God said. Give to God what is God's. That means obedience to everything God said. Uh, I'm going to um, say thank you publicly, although he'll never hear this. If he does, he's got way too much time on his hands. To Pastor Tim Keller, um, he saved my bacon this week because I was really wrestling with this one particular aspect of the focus for the morning. And then uh, he put something out this week, and I was like, there it is. That explains it. So I'm stealing it. It's his. It's not mine. Way too smart to be mine. It also stings a lot. So if we're supposed to be fully obedient to God in every area, what does that look like? Well, you go back to the early church. You go back to the, the book of Acts and you see how the early church has been birthed and how it's living within that culture of just messed up world and, and within the Roman Empire and just the, the wrong thinking, the immorality, the rampant just foolishness and sin that is there. And, and what the church became known for was five basic things, five, five basic things. And I'm going to put them in front of you and I'm just going to ask you, just bear with me and we'll walk through them with you and just explain to you what the church looked like in this time. First... The first thing the church had become known for was racial equality. If you look at the New Testament, you even see it. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul takes an entire chapter out of his, his, his theological unpacking of what salvation is to make sure the Ephesian church understands there is no Jew or Gentile. He, he says very clearly, there was a wall above you between you and God. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross destroyed that wall. So now you have access to God. But he also, in the process, destroyed this vertical wall that stood between races. There is no Jew or Gentile anymore. Instead, where two men once stood, now one stands. Racial equality. The early church lived that. They were known for it. It was surprising to the emperor and many others how... It was this multi-ethnic group that got together, unlike anything else at the time. Second thing is this, it's economic justice. Just like James 1.27, the early church lived this out. They cared for the poor, they cared for the immigrant, they cared for the widow, they cared for the orphan. They held nothing back, they found ways, you read Acts chapter Two, and you get to read how they sold everything and they had it in common so they could care for those who were in great need. There was a sense of economic justice that was unlike the rest of the culture. There was civility. Christians behaved in a manner that was much different than everybody else. They didn't slander. They didn't abuse verbally. They didn't speak poorly of people. They didn't take up arms to go make somebody pay for what somebody did to them. It was... It was civil. In fact, it was exactly what Peter said. We talked about this a few weeks ago. All of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called to this so you may inherit a blessing. That's what the early church looked like. Civility. They were also pro-life. 
anti-infanticide. The Roman Empire had a, I'll call it a policy, I don't even know if that's the right word to use. A practice certainly is. Where if a child was born into a family and that family didn't want them, they simply put them in the garbage. The early church, knowing this, seeing this, and understanding it was a direct violation against God's word, Psalm 139, knowing that God created them. They would go through the streets and find the discarded children, bring them home, feed them, care for them, adopt them into their own families. And finally, there was a biblical sexual ethic. And I won't go into details, so nobody has to reach over and cover the ears of your kids, okay? But the, the reality was the Roman Empire was living in an immoral, pornographic society, and they celebrated that. And the church was different. The church came in and said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Marriage is between one man and one woman, and the sexual relationship is to be enjoyed within that confines. This is where it gets difficult, doesn't it? I hope you understand. I see how uneasy some of you are with a few of those. And I'll, I'll just say it so that you, you can breathe a little bit. You look at numbers one and two, racial equality and economic justice, and what you find, so that's the platform of the Democratic Party, isn't it? Traditionally, yeah. But pro-life, biblical, sexual ethic, I mean, that's the platform of the Republican Party. And then you get civility, which nobody does, so you don't have to worry about that one. <laughs> you cannot vote one of those issues and ignore the other four. You can't even rank them in order of importance. You can't go behind the curtain of your polling station and pull the lever or check the box or push the button or whatever it is now. Who hits all five of those? That candidate does not exist. So if God calls us to total obedience because I am in his image and I can't do all of those things, what should I do? Well, we've come to the place where I get to tell you how to vote. And you are going to be disappointed. First, you better do more than vote. If those are clear commands of God for you, better change the way you live. You need to be living in such a way that the lives of people around you are impacted and affected as they come into contact with you because in coming into contact with you, they're coming into contact with the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So change the way you live. And secondly, pray Pray, pray for wisdom that only God can give you. I mean, this wouldn't be that difficult if it was only one issue. <laughs> Abortion, that is a sin. It is a biblical issue. It's a big issue. And if that was the only issue, no problem. But it's not. Racism, that's a biblical issue. It's sin. It's a big issue. If it was the only issue, no problem. It's not. Sexual ethics, civility, uh, um, poverty, the poor. This is complicated, so you had better be fasting and praying and searching and thinking and, and being careful of what assumptions you are making in how you vote and how others, uh, other believers are deciding to, to, to vote. 
Um, so let me do this with fear and trepidation. I'm, I'm looking at the time, and I'm going to go a little long. So um, <laughs> this is going to sound really uncool from a pastor. When we're done, leave. <laughs> no, when we're <laughs> we, we've got to clean the place. So I love you. Um, yeah, I'm going to go really long, though. I can tell already. So I, I pray you forgive me. Um, so especially this part, because if I don't explain this carefully, you are all going to throw chairs at me. So some people do say, so you get to this, and they're like, okay, fine. So I will never vote for a pro-choice candidate. Okay, fine, legitimate, great, I get it. But my caution to you, in the spirit of being different, in the spirit of living in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, my caution to you would be this. There are some Christians, and, and I, I won't name a name because I didn't ask his permission. It's, he doesn't, he's not from here. He's from a different state. Uh, I had a phone conversation with somebody this week who unpacked this for me, and I was astonished. There are some Christians who have spent, and this is probably the part I want you to pay attention to the most, weeks in dedicated time in prayer, fasting, Bible study, civics lessons, interviews, all intentional and immense amounts of time in this area. And have come to the conclusion, now again, I'm not saying that this is right or wrong. My main focus is this other aspect that they spent time doing it. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. But they have come to the conclusion after all of those times, that intentional time of studying, praying, fasting, civics lessons, interviews, all those things, they've come to the conclusion as they have looked at our country that this particular election, um, abortion for a topic, really the next president is going to have less to do with abortion than the next senators or your next state assemblyman. The reason they think that is in their study prayer, and again, I don't think I agree, I'm not sure if I agree with this, I still have a lot of wrestling to do with this, is because everything's set up, Roe versus Wade, if that gets overturned, what's going to end up happening is getting kicked back to the states. The next president will have very little to say about that. And so that has informed their decision-making process. That process of decision-making is something that most of us don't do. We, we make assumptions and we just vote according to the way we've always voted or what somebody else told me to vote. And this time, in particular, what we're doing is we're making some wild accusations. I think you've heard them. You can't possibly be a Christian and vote for fruit. You can't say that. That person has spent more time praying about thinking through and processing the issue of abortion than I ever have. Not just in the last couple of weeks, ever. How can you possibly say about a brother in Christ, well, you can't possibly be a Christian if you're going to vote for it. It sounds a lot like the Galatians. Do you remember that Galatians is a great book because Paul dials into the Galatians like, hey Galatians, it's me, it's Paul, I'm an apostle. Yeah, grace, 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 grace. I cannot believe you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he unpacks it, and what they're doing is saying, you can't be a Christian unless you do this. Unless you do this, you're not really a Christian. Unless you follow this law, you're not a Christian. Unless you do this rule, you're not a Christian. And Paul's like, that's a different gospel. And that doesn't mean it's just a little different in shades. No, a different gospel doesn't bring hope. A different gospel damns people to hell. He says, I can't believe you would do that. And that sounds an awful lot like you can't be a Christian unless you vote for. 
We need to approach all of this with love and humility. My goodness, God does not have a party affiliation. But you know what? It's easy for us to assume that God just gives his blind allegiance to people who claim his name. Joshua chapter 5. It's fascinating. Just before the battle of Jericho, Joshua is out looking at the wall. Somebody comes and approaches him, and he looks, and here comes this man with a sword drawn. We find out that this is the commander of the Lord's army. This is pre-incarnate Jesus Christ standing before Joshua. And Joshua says, whose side are you on? The pagans or the children of God? And you know what the answer was? Neither. What do you mean, neither? They're pagans. They're pagans. See, God sees things you don't, though. You know what God knew that, you, that, that Joshua didn't know? He was really concerned about this individual inside of Jericho named Rahab, who had just recently become a God-fearer. And though she was in the camp of the pagans, she was his. You know what else that God knew that Joshua didn't know at the time? Go forward another chapter and a half. There's this dude in, in the camp of the Israelites, the camp of the children of God, whose name was Achan, who had sinned grievously against God. God's like, hey, I'm not on any group's side. I'm on the one who fears me. You're on my side. So we can't believe in blind affiliations. We can't allow our blind allegiance to a party. We need to approach these things with humility. You don't assume your position. You do the hard work, and you land on a, a thoroughly biblical position when possible. And when the Bible is silent about an issue, and it is at times, what you must then do is admit that your position is based on principles and preferences, not on a thus says the Lord. So then you hold that position with an open hand and humility. It's Romans 14, which we certainly don't have time to go to. It's Romans 14. You become fully aware of and convinced about issues of the day, and you develop a, a conviction based on principles and preferences, and you understand that others may disagree with your convictions, but instead of judging them as being unenlightened, you find mutual unity in your differences because you choose love over idolatry. And you begin to look like God's chosen ones, Colossians Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against one. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule in your hearts and be thankful. When you approach difficult times, difficult topics like this, it brings a unity that is otherworldly. When your hope isn't in an individual, when your hope isn't in who wins or who loses, but when your hope is in Jesus and in Jesus alone, you can have inexplicable unity with someone you totally disagree with. Now, I've talked about these guys before. You've got, you got two disciples, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector both followers of Jesus Christ, both going wherever Jesus went, there was Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. They got to hear his words, see his miracles, understand his teaching. 
They were rebuked by him and encouraged by him, both Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. And Simon the Zealot was anti-Rome. And Matthew the tax collector was working for Rome. And yet they sat around the conference room table with Jesus. Can you imagine the looks they shot at each other? And what you find, though, is through church history that Simon ended up going into Egypt to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the living Savior. And he was martyred by being sawn in half. Matthew ended up going into Syria, spreading the gospel, and was martyred somewhere along the lines there. These two men, who were completely different and opposing political strategies, found a greater unity in their love for Jesus than in the political issues that divided them. Friends, that's what it looks like to be different. When your hope is in Jesus and in Jesus alone, you can have inexplicable unity with somebody that you disagree completely with. You also can have a deep peace in a world that's lost its mind. Good news. Jesus already knows who the next president's going to be. Better news. When you wake up on Wednesday morning, there's still only one king. His name's Jesus. And that's what we get to celebrate next week. Father God, would you give us grace for these moments? This is a difficult time, a trying time, a frustrating time. God, they're personal issues. They're, they're intense moral issues. There's... There, it, <laughs> God, it's hard. So I pray instead of us thinking that we can have it all figured out, instead that we would be more concerned about being people marked by integrity and unity. Would you set a guard on our mouths? Would we follow after the Spirit's leading as he tells us to hush? May we be confident in, in our standing in Christ. May we celebrate him well in these next days. God, no matter what happens, man, we, look, we look forward to being able to celebrate with with each and every believer across the world. That day that we stand before Christ and raise our arms and fall to our faces, confessing and celebrating that the Jesus that we've known and loved, that loved us, is the Jesus who will rule for all of eternity. Father, we're thankful. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.